0: where common sense, honest conversation, and thought-provoking discussions thrive in a completely independent forum. This is The Roundup Podcast. Here now is your host, Jeff Eager. Hello and welcome to The Oregon Roundup Podcast. This is your host, Jeff Eager. It's been a while since I've been with you on the podcast, been busy on the newsletter front. You can check out all those things at OregonRoundup.substack. Dot com. But today I come back to your ears with a very cool interview with uh, Richard Sheverton, who writes for the Portland Descent, uh, which is another publication on Substack that's devoted to Oregon and mostly Portland specific stuff. If You like my stuff, you'll probably like his and his co-author Pam's stuff, uh, go to Oregon not Oregon roundup portlanddescent.substack.com to check out their stuff i we i talked to richard about the state of journalism in oregon and portland specifically richard is a retired journalist and uh, and then we talk a little bit about portland's uh, charter reform uh, which is taking the number of city councilors in that city from 5 to 12 Richard's got some concerns about how that's going to play out. He does a relatively deep dive into that. We uh, have a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, and now I have Richard Sheverton, uh, who is from Portland, writes a really great newsletter on Substack called The Portland Descent. He and Pamela Fitzsimmons write that. They also produce, they also disseminate some stuff that's written by other people. But it's a great newsletter for keeping track of the stuff that goes on in Portland. Richard, welcome to the Oregon Roundup podcast. Great to be here. Thanks again for joining. And uh, just tell me and the listeners a little bit about your background, what you're trying to do with the Portland descent, uh, and then we'll get into some media questions.
1: I basically, uh, Pam and I, well, I can't really speak for Pam, but... I suspect that we both had the same uh, reason for starting Portland Descent, which was basically we had been in the uh, newspaper business, both of us, for a very long time. I retired. She's been retired. And we looked around at the quality of journalism, in, uh, particularly in Portland. And if they had been doing their job properly, I uh, wouldn't have left much room for us to uh, raise a ruckus but actually uh it's it 's been really easy because there are unwritten compacts there must be a a master list somewhere, probably in therese bottomley 's bottom drawer of things that we will not under any circumstances whatsoever talk about ever in Portland because it 's just nice not nice to talk about them and Pam and I talk about those things. And so it's kind of ridiculously easy. it's uh, kind of the old shooting ducks in a barrel kind of thing. Uh, you know, we did it, I think because we were amazed at the at the quality of journalism in this town and secondarily, uh, you know when you're bored when you're uh, retired, you get bored very easily, and so <laughs> we were bored. <laughs> you know, we started out with I've forgotten how many people we had in the beginning. it was probably. Six, I dragooned my uh, girlfriend into uh, reading this stuff. <laughs> I was kind of mostly writing it to uh, convince her that I was really a brainy guy, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it has grown for reasons that amaze me. We have never marketed it. Uh, if anybody's found it, it's been strictly by chance. You know, now all of a sudden there are. A whole bunch of people who read this stuff, and that kind of changes things because when you actually have an audience, and 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 you can probably speak to this as well, and there are people reading you, and they're pretty smart. Yep. Uh, it really it really makes you up your game, and yep. uh, it it puts a little bit of pressure on that we hadn't really anticipated, but um, it, it's been a heck of a trip actually. Um, and I I must say that. You know, in all the years that I was in the news business at, uh, you know, papers in Philadelphia and Detroit and Seattle and Southern California, this really honestly is the most fun I have ever had in the news business. Bar none. I, I, I love doing this stuff.
0: Why do you think that is? Why do you think this is your favorite? Is because you don't have an editor. Yeah,
1: I don't think. have an editor. And, you know, the other thing is it, newspapers, uh, it's not the, it, when I was in the newspaper game, it was really pre internet or just the transition to the internet, which nobody in the newspaper business understood. Nobody. It, it was very difficult to, to get a sense of who was reading what in this, you know, like five pound bunch of newsprint that we would drop on everybody's porches in Southern California every Sunday. I mean, it was a gigantic, massive object. And uh, there was no really reliable way to get a sense of what the heck people really wanted to read, how they were reacting to what we were giving them. And this leads, and, and you see that the tertiary aspect of it, mostly in the Oregonian, to some extent in Willie Week of, well, if we can't tell what the people really are interested in, and we're not getting a sense of where the eyeballs are at, that gives us complete and total authority to define news any way we want. And it was really kind of the bad medicine may taste terrible, but it's good for you. That kind of mentality was very, very prevalent in the newspaper business. Mm-hmm. I would have to plead guilty to it, mm-hmm. but it's pretty obvious. You pick up the Oregonian and uh, you know, they're really not a print newspaper anymore. Yep. But, uh, you, you know, it's, it's a bunch of people who are in a, a real psychological bubble who uh, really are just mostly self-referential, and they they just don't really kind of have any functioning relationship with whoever the heck is out there in the dark reading them. They're, they're, they're not attuned to that in any way. Mm-hmm. It's understandable, but it's it's not healthy. And the, one of the problems in Portland now is that we are in a period of uh, – Now, I could be wrong on this, but I think we're in a period of very profound transition between one physical form of journalism and another. The best example of that is, Jeff, what you're doing and what PDX Real is doing and what uh, the various uh, people on Twitter are doing, which is is to really kind of reformulate journalism. Um, and, uh, I, you know, who knows where that's going to lead, but I think the day could come when the Oregonian just simply doesn't exist in Portland anymore. Right. Uh, it, 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 it will be amazing if they can survive.
0: It, it does seem to be the trend, doesn't it? And not just in Portland, obviously, I think almost all newspapers that don't have like a national reach and even some that do are, are struggling. The Ben Bulletin over here is... Uh, they just stopped home delivery, so you can only get your paper delivered via the mail if you still get your paper delivered. I just have a digital-only subscription to the bulletin after for years and years and years, if not decades, um, you know, religiously reading the... F- the actual paper every day, that sure seems to be the way things, um, is, things are going. But, you know, when I look at, when I used to read the bulletin, I didn't read everything, you know, I'd start off at the front page and read the stories I thought were interesting. And I probably read like 10% of the paper to me, if that, um, because I, I just don't care about whether it's planting season, you know, I have my own interests. Other people are into the planting season, but kind of packaging up all that stuff Into the form of a newspaper where just kind of legacy wise, someone at some point decided we're going to do political news alongside gardening tips uh, alongside (laughs) comics alongside, you know, who knows what else that model sure looks like it's failing.
1: Yeah. Well, it, it, it's kind of like uh, it, it's happening everywhere else in society when you really come right down to it. You know, the whole arc of commerce, really, the the huge department store with all these various departments all under one roof, four or five floors, escalators, that's really obsolete. And people are, are beginning to understand, and I think this is a real impact of the computer era, the Internet era, is... I'm as good an editor as they are and mm-hmm. I can I can pick and choose uh, you know for example YouTube which is which is number 1 on my that's the channel that I really would you know I I would stick with them come hell or high water. And the great thing about YouTube is they edit, but you get to edit as well. And if you get bored, you can fast forward, or yeah. you can just watch half of a movie, or you can save it for later, or you can just go to a part that you know is really great, or you can watch, you know, uh, the 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 scissors are now in the hands of the public, and uh, I don't think you'll ever get them out again. One of the fatal mistakes, and it was fatal because it was an expression of a certain psychological standpoint, was when the Oregonian detached themselves from a bolt-on piece of software called Quorum, I think it's called. And it was a way for people to comment in real time on stories that were appearing. uh, And you could attach your little thoughts to the bottom. The Wall Street Journal still does this, and they're very good at it. Yep. For what... Ever reason it couldn't have been an economic decision. I don't think Cora costs very much to to run. But uh, Therese Bottomley wrote a long uh, letter from the editor, basically saying, "We're not interested in what you have to say anymore. <laughs> we don't care. Go somewhere else and express yourself." You know, Willie Week has banned. Pam and myself for life. Uh, it doesn't take much to get banned for life. Uh, they tend to like people who kind of roll around in the muck. Uh, but people who have something fairly serious to say, particularly if it involves the attorney general of the state of Oregon. Uh, I wonder why dead. that is. <laughs> they're gone. And why Why about why, it.
0: why would Willamette Week be, be uh, skeptical of people who are critical of the Attorney General of Oregon, Richard.
1: it's a family thing i guess yeah what
0: uh rosen husband is the publisher is that right or um
1: uh, they're mixed up together in that somewhere but yeah. uh but you're you're not at liberty to say <laughs> not at liberty by to say. the Willamette Week. okay yeah
0: no it's uh <laughs> yeah that's that's very true and you you know you kind of compare that approach to where you and i write which is on substack uh which you know has its own kind of shortcomings. But I mean, you can turn off your comments, but I don't see many Substack writers that do that. And it's kind of more of a community and more of, you know, I know I get emails from my readers, I get comments on the posts, etc. And it's really a useful kind of feedback mechanism for what people are thinking about what you've put out there that I think me as someone who writes for the public, it's important to me. So it seems weird to cut that off.
1: Yeah. It's really interesting, uh, that people actually like to take the opportunity to put their thoughts, you know, and some of these things are very obviously things that people have done a great deal of thinking about and share them with, um, people that they have no idea who they are, do it in good faith and say, uh, Nine times out of ten, they say things that are really, really smart. And yep. I can't tell you how many uh, people have commented on pieces that uh, Pam has done and I've done, and even some of the guest pieces that we've run, where they'll raise an issue that I, you know, I kind of thought, "Gee whiz, I wish I'd thought about that." Yep, would have made a much better piece. But yep. uh, you know, knowing that uh, somebody's out there who knows the history a little more deeply it is really a good thing to have. Actually, one of the early commenters was josh marquis Uh and you know josh i've been kind of romancing him he's another retired guy and he has other things to do with his life but he's uh we've got a piece that we're going to drop fairly soon i think about that kind of just disassembles the whole issue of okay what's a district attorney what the hell should they really be doing yeah and uh what what is the case for the very the two guys that are Running Mm -hmm. and and written from the standpoint of somebody who's done that job and also has a great sense of history and um, we never would have come. I I never would have encountered Josh uh, except for the fact that he was able to comment on earlier pieces and you kind of sit there and you think, "Golly, this guy's got something to say." Yep, which is terrific. And and that is not an attitude that is common <laughs> in any newsroom, I would contend, in the United States today. It it you know, we are the priesthood. Mm-hmm. We have our diplomas on the wall. Worst thing that ever happened to journalism. And, uh, you know, we know and you don't. So just shut up, relax, sit back, read this garbage (laughs) that we're handing out. Pay us. And that's that's just not a corporate solution to the problem that they're facing, I think.
0: Yeah, it, it sure isn't working out for them right now.
1: I can see the day when Advanced Communication, which is a huge company, privately held, so we don't know how healthy the company is, but we do know that newspapers are not doing well economically. Big magazines are, are really in deep trouble. And I can see the day when, you know, the grandees in New York kind of look around the portfolio and go, oh, what the hell are we bothering with this little thing out in Portland, Oregon? I mean, it's it's a money pit. Let's get out of it. Let's just dump it. And then somebody who's a, a kind of a bottom feeder, which ironically is the way that uh, advanced – uh, communications began with Cy Newhouse. You know, it'll be taken over, and then it'll be uh, kind of milked for everything that's left to milk it for, and it will just gradually become kind of like the Tribune. It'll be like a, a shopper with a couple of stories in it. Yep. And and I think that's inevitable.
0: Yeah, and it's it's unfortunate because in a way, it's unfortunate because it. We need journalism, especially political slash government journalism. It's the only way voters know what's going on other than what the government tells them. And what the government tells them is, of course, biased in the government's uh, favor and in the favor of whatever elected officials are running the government at that time. So just as we're facing just some really critical public policy issues especially in Oregon but everywhere to have the the kind of legacy mechanism by which people got their government and political news evaporate or at least dwindle uh, significantly that timing is unfortunate and i don't think it's coincidental i think that a lot of our our problems right now are based on uh people just not really knowing what's going on and everyone siloed into their own kind of People who read my stuff, you know, come from a certain background, largely, not not entirely. Um, And people who read other stuff come from the other side. And it's siloed. I think part of that is because the journalism folks who ran their, you know, worked at these legacy outfits for a long time, they were siloed, too. They were biased. They were of a particular political opinion. And they just pretended they weren't. And they still do to a to a large degree. But that's just that's just not realistic. I don't think people see the world that way. I don't think anyone believes that someone who writes about politics for a reason for a living really has no interest in the outcome.
1: Well, uh, they certainly do. I mean, let's face it, if if you are going to uh, and I can't speak for you, but I I think anybody who gets into the business of um, journalism is kind of. An egomaniac in a way. <laughs> yes, you, you you have to trust that you have something to say. One, uh, you know, one of the best parts uh, I think of the whole Substack evolution mm-hmm. is that you don't have to fill a newspaper every damn day. Yep. and you can write when you have something to write about, and the the fill the newspaper mentality has led journalists to make so many really fundamental mistakes that... And, you know, the internet is is even worse in a sense because it's gobbling material 24-7. There's not a lot of editing going on. Probably a lot of stuff is go, well, you know, who edits me for that matter? Mm-hmm. The compensation to that is that as a reader, you can kind of pick and choose which voices you, you want to paint it, a kind of attention to. And the problem with the newspaper is that they've packaged all of these varying talents together. You, you can't believe them all. They can't possibly all be just equally competent. And, and you look at the, at the bylines in the Oregonian, and that's proof positive without going into any detail yeah, here. But, yeah. you know, there are some people writing for the Oregonian who seem to know what they're doing. And there's some who seem in a in a continual daze, it's like they're floating in midair. Yeah. <laughs> they're yeah. not attached to uh, anything that you can kind of say is. Oh, gee whiz, is it reality? You know that that's a very disconnected kind of newspaper, and it it really shows. I think.
0: Yeah, totally agree, and uh, I appreciate you doing the deep dive on kind of the the media stuff as it affects uh, Portland and Oregon. Generally given your background as a as a I mean, current kind of as a retired journalist still producing stuff, I think it's it's really cool. It'll be interest interesting in five years or so to look back at if Oregon and Portland I, I don't think Oregon can figure things out without Portland kind of figuring things out. If Portland and Oregon figure things out somewhat in the next five years, it'll be really interesting to go back and look at why. What changed? And I think that the stuff, you know, you mentioned PDX Real, uh, you guys, you know, Rational in Portland. There's tons of people on Twitter trying to get Portland to do things differently. It's all I think you've used the term in at least one of your pieces, pirate journalism. And it is. It's a bunch of us like me. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I, I'm not a journalist. <laughs> yes, but, you are. But there's there's a bunch of people out there that kind of have their own homegrown things that we're all kind of pounding away at. And I think it I think it does. Uh, it does over time make a difference. And, you know, some of us were saying things like Portland's on the wrong track, Oregon's on the wrong track before it was cool to say that, you know, you were certainly one of those. And hopefully it'll it'll help change things.
1: Well, you have to start somewhere. Uh, You know, my one of the places that I was uh, I went to school in Chicago and I worked uh, for two or three different uh, media outlets in Chicago. Uh, You know, Chicago was was completely under the thumb of Richard J. Jaley and the mob. Yep. Those were the two main power centers in the city. And there was a reform movement in Chicago. And there were voices in Studs Terkel and and, uh, Mike Rico and guys like that. There was no conception that you could ever not elect Richard J. Daley. I was involved in a campaign. uh, It was mostly symbolic, but, you know, you you get into a campaign and you get serious about it. Uh, A guy named Dick Friedman, who is running against Daley. We weren't going to win and we knew it. But there was, a, there was a very strong consensus in Chicago that, damn it, even if we don't win now, we're going to try to put something together. We're going to leave something uh, out of each election, a little bit of, uh, A, we're going to learn things, B, we're going to make friends, we're going to keep the message alive, one day reform will indeed come to Chicago. And it did, actually. Uh, those guys won. Took them Ten years. There was a guy named, I know his last name was Rose. Forgot his first name now, but he'd been in a in a he'd been a reformer in Chicago for years, and he knew he wasn't going to win, but he wouldn't quit. He just would not quit. And he, uh, he was a walking encyclopedia of people who could be dependent on and what, you know, who do you have to talk to and what's the message and how can you get the message out? One of the problems with Oregon and Portland in particular is I just don't see that here. I don't mm-hmm. see it in Portland. I know there are people who are not um, completely uh, brainwashed uh, progressive types I just don't have a feel for the fact that there is some kind of organizational framework that's beginning to, to assert itself in any way. I could be dead wrong about that. It's just a feeling kind of thing.
0: Yeah. And I, I think that that's an interesting point. And I've, um, the comparison to Chicago is not lost on me. Um, where in, in Oregon, the, The Oregon version of the mob is the public sector unions, in in my opinion. Yes. Uh, Yes. You know, and nonprofits and nonprofits. And there's a whole thing that keeps the money flowing and keeps things going the way that it's going. And part of what needs to happen is that that cycle gets, if not broken, disrupted. Um, so that some other ideas can be involved in governing, governing the state. Um, but I, I, I think i'm a maybe I'm a little more optimistic than you are uh in the sense that probably wrongly so uh but there, there is if you compare where we are right now in twenty twenty three we're recording this November first twenty twenty three to where we were, say in March or April of twenty twenty that was like March or April of twenty twenty was bad, bad uh yes from in Oregon and everywhere but yeah. really bad in Oregon in the sense of you didn't even hear dissenting voices from mm-hmm. the COVID restrictions that Kate Brown was putting in place at the time from all the weird stuff that, you know, measure 110 came out of that year as well. There just wasn't any pushback on any of that stuff. Now there is, right? There's, there's, yeah, the there is so I think about and, and I, I, I also think that there is a growing, kind of centrist kind of machi- machine, if you will, that is trying to do and has been somewhat successful in doing things like challenging measure 110, challenging Mike Schmidt as district attorney for Multnomah County, you know, keeping Ted Wheeler in place versus whoever that communist was that was running against him. <laughs> I mean, that's uh so I think that there Oregon is kind of finding its, its footing. And I think uh, uh, one that I'm really keeping my eye on is what happens with 110. I think that's the biggest thing going in the state right now. And if people are able to get 110 significantly pared back or repealed, um, that's a that's a major feather in the cap for this kind of centrist coalition that I think and hope is, is growing in the state.
1: 110 is a really interesting issue. Uh, I've been trying to kind of get my head around it because Nobody seriously believes that that the the throw them in jail aspect uh, is bound to work. Right. Although I have to say, back in my days as a cub reporter back in Cincinnati and in Grand Rapids, Michigan and other places like that, which were traditional and tough towns, uh, you'd go down to the police court in the morning and there would be the usual scrapings off the street from the night before, and they would be dispensed with in very quick order, and a great many of them, and this was also true down in Yamhill County, in McMinnville, pre-110. People who did drugs went to jail, and there was, there was none of this revolving door stuff, especially if they caught you with drugs after you had gone on, you know, gotten your first probation they locked you up. The proof is in the pudding yep. that Cincinnati was not overrun with druggies. Grand Rapids, God knows, was not overrun with druggies. They were they were there, but th- it was tamped down to the level where everybody could live their way around it, and it wasn't in your face every day and everywhere. Same thing with uh, McMinnville. There was a, a a little gang of tweakers. Mm-hmm. who decided that they wanted to own a corner in downtown on Third Avenue in down or Third Street in downtown McMinnville. And the city, you know, sent a very nice young woman in the police department over to counsel them. I used to watch this because I drank in a bar that was right across the street. And um, they were not convinced that that is, you know, like, gee whiz, this is our corner. Get out of here. And so what they did is they completely remodeled the little kind of like a postage stamp park and made it impossible for them to gather there physically. Mm -hmm. And the problem went somewhere else. And that could never happen. You know, the most they can do in Portland, it's pathetic. The most they can do is boulder some areas. Uh, You know, they ought to boulder the entire city. (laughs) (laughs) Good luck. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, the I guess it's just because I'm getting old is it, it seems to me that the tough response right out of the bag, well, it's the broken windows school of policing, yep. Yep. which I think is true. You stop this crap uh, before it gets to be major league. And yep. um, then you take, you've got fewer major league problems to take care of and they're a little easier to uh, ameliorate.
0: I think it's interesting. That, I think with public safety, you mentioned the broken windows thing and then and then we'll transition into a Portland specific issue. But briefly on public safety, it seems to me that a lot of it is it's like sports. It's uh, in a way like much higher stakes, of course, but momentum and perception is huge. So I think part of what Giuliani did in New York was and Giuliani's a he's a nutcase now, but he was in my estimation, a pretty good mayor of New York. He was great. Um, and he made it clear what really it, when you boil down all the stuff he did, it was, we're not doing it this way anymore, that we are not to- tolerating crime. We are not tolerating disorder in our city. And everything he did was toward that end. If you have a municipality that, that has that as its goal and actually backs it up with real policy for a sustained period of time, you you end up not attracting people that want to do disorderly things Uh, and you end up, uh, you know, kind of maybe helping to reform some of the people that were doing disorderly things into not doing disorderly things. And Oregon is headed in exactly the wrong direction right now. I think that we might be turning it around. I think doing something significant with 110 would definitely send a message that Oregon has a different approach to public safety, uh, and certainly drugs, uh, than it did a few years ago. And we just need that momentum to shift. It's going to take a long time and it's going to take a lot of people doing a lot of things. We just are sending the wrong message right now that anything goes. And if you want to live in a place that anything goes, Oregon and especially Portland is, uh, is a place to be. So on that, on that note, Portland, uh, you, you and Pam do a fantastic job covering Portland City Hall stuff. Like you're you guys are my go-to on that. Um oh, thank you. And especially you just you just published in the last few days a pretty lengthy piece about uh the the City of Portland's charter amendment that was approved by voters what in the last year or two and it's going to significantly change the way Portland is governed. Or at least the mechanics of how Portland is governed. And, um, it's something that I've followed kind of generally. I think a lot of my listeners have followed it generally, but I was hoping you could give us kind of your, your take on what it is. First of all, the amendment and then what the effects are likely to be.
1: Well, I want to, I want to go back to the point you just made, which I think is just absolutely spot on. The, the idea of setting. A, a, a tone, I guess you would say, yep. it's been very interesting to watch uh Wheeler in the last uh maybe two years of his time in office, and I'm a little sorry that he's not gonna run for reelection, and that's yep. a strange thing to say because I've been very critical of him, but I think Wheeler has finally finally started to figure it out, and the problem that Wheeler has had is that every time he says something that sets a tolerance level, let's say. Like this, we're not going to put up with this shit anymore. He ameliorates it. And and this is true even, I think, of Gonzalez to some extent. Take a strong stand, but then you get sort of into the, into the well, yeah, but, and the, yeah, but they're all humans too, and we yeah. can't do this, and blah, blah, blah. And it, it, it just gets, his message of strength just gets uh, completely befuddled. So you don't have any. Powerful, strong. We're not putting up with this shit anymore. Kind of voice in Portland politics, and 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 that's that's a problem. That's a big problem. Anyway, so, so what would the charter? charter. Would, would the charter reform? <laughs> do you think the charter reform makes it more or less likely that we get less likely leader out of Portland? Less the part, the the mayor. I mean, it, it it always comes down to personality, doesn't it, Jeff? I mean, if if you have a guy like Joe Biden who is president versus a guy like uh John F Kennedy let's say <laughs> yeah. the the power that they have is exactly the same probably a little less back in Kennedy's day yeah. but the way that they use it is is completely the 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 perception you have of them as human beings and decision makers is just wholly different yeah. and um so it's going to depend on who becomes mayor and the problem with that is that the mayor truly has no power per se. Uh, and it, to the extent that they will have power is is going to be completely a matter of who uh, who is sitting in the big chair. It, it would have to be moral persuasive power. Yeah. And I don't see an awful lot of Dispensers of that kind of political power in the menagerie of people in um, politics in Portland. I mean, ev- everybody is trying to, you know, shave the corners off, and we can't be too rough here. And yeah. and who's going to come out and just pound on the lectern? And that's what that job is going to require: is a clarity of vision and an ability to to focus on very key issues. I mean, the brilliance of Giuliani was he understood New Yorkers are sick and tired of not being in control of their streets. And I'm going to do something about it, period.
0: And that everything was downstream from public safety, that that was that was ruining New York. That's why people were leaving. That's why the economy there was in the tank. It was all all public safety. I mean, I think I think it'd be interesting if someone ever did a really uh, deep dive into comparing Portland circa 2023 to New York City circa I don't know 1990 or something. What those those comparisons are, it seems to me that they're they're pretty spot on.
1: I, I think we're further along the the path to anarchy than probably even New York yeah. because New York it was it was kind of centralized, mm-hmm. but the problem when in, in Portland is that the the Decay. The indicators of decay are ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. Uh, my immediate neighborhood, where I live over in Montevilla, is it's pretty. It's a pretty nice neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I can't go anywhere in a reasonable radius around uh, where I live without encountering some really scenes of degradation. You know, I can't go over. I can't go across 82nd and go down Stark without going past the uh, semi permanent two, three, four homeless people encamped on the sidewalk in winter. You know, they they come and they go, but they always come. You know, you talk to people uh, in the barbershop, in Johnny's barbershop, and they'll tell you, oh, that gas station on the corner, that's where everybody gets drugs. You know, everybody in the neighborhood knows what's going on. The St. Peter and Paul Church, which thank God they're going to tear down, but they're not going to stop needle dispensing. Everybody in Bonneville understands that that's like a, a carbuncle over there. Uh, It's it's being run by a woman who doesn't even live in Montevilla, but, you know, she's got her own idea about how we ought to treat uh, drug addicts. And unfortunately, it uh, destroys the property value of just about every house that's in any relationship to that church. And she doesn't care. It's right. not her problem. Right? She's got a, she's got an agenda. Mm-hmm. So well, anyway, back to the back to it struck me as really weird. And this is way early in the whole period when we were doing the Substack that we had this group of, I forgot how many 14, I think it was 13, 14 people who were meeting to devise a whole new government, and nobody was reporting on it. Mm-hmm. Nobody, yeah. Willie Week didn't care. Your Guardian didn't care. Television, of course, they did. They didn't know what was going on. Right. Nobody cared. The more I began to look at uh, the stuff that they were putting out, the publicity managed by the coalition of communities of color, I might add, it, it seemed to me that it was uh, uh, just a classic uh, inmates running the asylum. And the quality of the people on the commission was dismal. Uh, they were all true believers. They were all defund the cops types. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was there was no dissension on that. Maybe in one or two cases, there were a couple of people who resigned, but they never started yelling and screaming about the the, the craziness of what these people were coming up with. And there were really no public meetings. What the hell? It was COVID era.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, they were getting away with murder. (laughs) And, you know, I kept writing about it. And nobody else in the city of Portland seemed to be even remotely interested in what was being concocted. Now, now that it's been voted on uh, with with very, very little coverage from from legacy media, people are beginning to discover, golly, we're going to have a whole new bureaucracy. We're going to have all kinds of unelected people who are going to be running all kinds of other unelected people. The one thing you can guarantee is that bureaucracies behave the way that bureaucracies always, always do. They want to get bigger. They're cancerous and they don't like citizens looking over their shoulder. They just don't. Yep. If you think it's tough getting uh, an email to a, a press person in county or city government answered you just wait until you're dealing with bureaucrats who are like completely insulated
0: and what, so what does the what does the charter reform do specifically that empowers bureaucrats
1: well it it means that the people who run the bureaus of the government right. are no longer they're not elected, elected officials
0: yep okay yep. that's right because i think in general the What the reform, it goes from five city councilors or commissioners to 12. Is that right? And they're geographically chopped up.
1: Four big districts. Uh, Each district has approximately the population of Eugene, I believe it is. And there'll be three councilors, as they're known as, from each of the districts, which boggles my mind. The three will be elected in a voting scheme that I am not aware is used in any other city of any particular size, and it is called single transferable vote. And the problem, the mathematical problem that you run into with a three-member district is that how do you figure out who wins? Mm -hmm. And the way that they're going to figure out who wins is that the first person on the And who knows how many candidates there actually will be. There aren't many lining up right now, as a matter of fact. The first person who gets to 25% plus one vote, 25% of the total vote, plus one vote, uh, they stop counting as votes. Mm -hmm. And then it begins to shift. It becomes a a, a machine algorithm that takes the votes that are left over from Mr. or Mrs. 25%, plus one, and begins to slide them down to second, third choices that voters would obediently yeah. mark on their ballots.
0: Ranked rank choice voting, right? Yes. Isn't that, yep.
1: Yeah. Rank choice is a little different. See, there are two different voting methods embedded in the new charter. One is to elect people with 25% of the vote in the, the districts. Mm-hmm. Nobody will get more than 25% of the vote. Mm. Figure that one out. The mayor will be ranked choice, Mm. which means that if you get 50% plus one vote, you're in. But the odds of that happening are minuscule, given the ethnic rivalries in Portland, Mm -hmm. uh, if nothing else. And um, so that's a whole different way of counting and shifting votes and as the Alaska election, I think, proved beyond any doubt, it produces very surprising results. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and if you had, let's say, for example, let's just pick a couple names at random. Ms. Rubio, who is the avatar of the Hispanic um, vote in, or would like to be the avatar of the Hispanic vote in Portland mm-hmm. versus Mingus Maps, black. Mm-hmm. Okay. There are actually more Hispanics than there are blacks in Portland. Sure. And in a citywide vote, assuming that you have a rock solid Hispanic vote versus a rock solid black vote, it get it gets to be a question of okay, who's picking not number one so much as number two. Now right. if you have two black candidates for a very powerful map and Joanne Hardesty comes back from the dead. Uh, She's got over half a million bucks to do a campaign. She'll she'd be feeling no pain. Okay, so Mingus Maps and Joanne Hardesty are competing for the black base vote. Well, if you this is what happened in Alaska is that the two Republicans in Alaska is a Republican state cut each other's votes up in a way that allowed the Democrat to sneak in as a yep. second choice. Yeah, Yeah. <laughs> surprise. <Yep. laughs> so that's the kind of weird stuff that guaranteed to happen with with uh, ranked choice voting. And, and the problem is, you know, if it's first past the post and you actually trust the counting of those votes, that's a big question in some places, but in mm-hmm. Portland, it's not such a big deal. Yep. And if you really, if you really take that seriously, if Wheeler gets fifty, you know, gets in as the majority number of votes, okay, he's got some credibility. Mm-hmm. But if somebody comes out of this who, in the first round of voting, was three or fourth, and somehow suddenly pops up in the next round of voting as number one, this is a critical issue of of Do you really think this guy is the boss? Mm -hmm. If you're the Hardesty voter versus the MAPS voter and Rubio comes in because she's not chopping up the Hispanic vote, then you're really peeved. Yeah. Yeah. You know, maybe MAPS and, and Hardesty get between the two of them more first place votes, but they just don't go to 50%. Right. And then somebody else comes in out of left field and wins. Well, you know, the whole idea that the Charter Commission was putting forward is, oh, this will make everybody get along. <laughs> coalitions, no, it's going to do exactly the
0: opposite. No, it's the opposite of coalition. It, it encourages narrow interests to back their own candidate, not to form coalition.
1: And this is a very bad time for a city to have to take this kind of chance on the legitimacy, the perception of the legitimacy of power, three people are going to somehow represent my area of the city, the east side. Well, who the hell do I call? Yeah, who's number one on my list? And yeah. what if what if they are very clearly in office because the Ukrainian committee got, community got together and and just you know big chunk of votes and they waltzed in mm-hmm. on a second or third. Round of counting uh, I don't know if I think that that guy is going to be my representative who is my representative mm-hmm. the only place that ever really seriously tried this was God help us. it was Baltimore, Maryland, which is a horrible city it used to be great yep and they gave up on it. it just it didn't work but you know nobody that I'm aware of on the on the, the committees the 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 commission, mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't strike me as people who do a lot of reading in political science or <laughs> probably even knew what had happened in Baltimore. Yeah. I mean, yeah. gee whiz, it's so far away. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, <laughs> and, but, yeah, I think yeah, it's yeah. going to be, a, I, maybe I'm wrong. I'm a pessimist, but I, I think it's going to be an adventure in uh, incompetence, uh, narcissism, and a whole bunch of people who just are going to be overwhelmed and the person who will wind up running the city is whoever is the professional administrator, right. and they will not be answering your phone call, yeah. <laughs> guaranteed. That,
0: well, that that is pessimistic, Richard. That's, uh, but not not surprisingly, and given kind of the direction Portland has gone in recent years, that it's in line with kind of everything that's happened up there, which is like maximize racial division. Give everyone their own representatives so that we just have like these, I don't know, political movements based on what race you are. Um, Oh, absolutely. That's that's it for Berlin.
1: Absolutely true.
0: It's a great way to tear a city apart. Uh, which is yep. uh, what's happening in Portland. But
1: see, there's there's a lot of money in tearing a city apart. There, there's a lot of money in being a bottom feeder on newspapers that are on their last legs. You can make money from that stuff. And the people who are making money, well, you go back to Chicago. The The machine was a total employment. We want to keep a lot of people uh, in jobs so that they and their family will go and vote for them. And when I was in that campaign, one of the people on the research staff sat down and they we knew how many people worked for the city government and the park district and the county yep. all in the machine. And the number that we came up with is if they all voted for the machine candidate, they and their family and figure they, you know, it's 2.5 and then all that sort of thing. They were unbeatable. Nobody could beat them. Yeah. They had the absolute majority number. It, so it was the employment. It was like a big employment agency with a kind of uh, aspect of uh, routine corruption. I mean, if you wanted to start a buyer, you knew exactly what you had to pay the to licenses and the health guys, along with a tacit agreement with the mob that you just leave them alone. People... People want to have their gambling, and people want to do uh, shady loans. They can't get money anywhere else. Yeah, we don't care about. It. Go ahead and do it, but just don't make a big fuss. Mm-hmm. But it's very different in in this machine because this machine, although I think there's an emerging criminal element to the machine, yeah. but this machine is is not the cutout are nonprofits, and it's very hard to get your hands around that. I've I've been pondering this for the better part of two years, you know, nonprofits are highly unregulated. Most of them do not report promptly their, uh, the form nine nineties. So the IRS is way behind on nine nineties. You might know what a nonprofit is doing like two or three years ago, yep, uh, but not not contemporaneous. And none of them will print their balance sheet on the web. Very few do. Uh, but they are getting colossal amounts of money yes. from the government. Anybody who can't, I mean, that it, it's a great scam. Mm-hmm. Set up a, a 513K or whatever the hell it is and uh, go, you know, make nice to the uh, proper public officials and uh, they'll give you a grant to uh, do something. Well, that's precisely what happened with
0: LaModa and that nonprofit that they, Tip of the iceberg, and they man. set up and because <laughs> they I mean it pretty clearly was set up because they they thought they could get Val Hoyle to give them half a million bucks, and that's uh that's exactly what they did. Uh and yeah, no, I I'm with you on the nonprofit stuff. It's super well, hard to if
1: track. You, if you go back to uh Measure one ten. Yeah. Measure one ten was a colossal amount of money. That was going to go to the people who were promoting 110. Yep, they weren't particularly interested in getting a whole bunch of people off dope, because it's the same thing with the homeless uh, homelessness incorporated. You know, Kevin Dahlgren's target, but they, you know, they need those customers. So what? What the money really has been spent on largely is uh, harm reduction. Yep or maintenance programs mm-hmm. or here's a place you can go and sleep it off but serious efforts to get people off drugs or to make it untenable for them to be on drugs which are really the only things that are going to work in terms of reducing the size of the problem yep um not there yeah nobody can make any money doing that stuff what are you talking about you're taking our customers away
0: yep absolutely it's a it's a huge um huge problem. Well, Richard, I want to be I want to thank you very much for being so generous with your time, but we are we are out of time now. Ah, okay. How should um so people should go to what it, it's portlanddescent.substack.com. Correct. and subscribe so that they receive your yeah. uh your excellent newsletters and can keep up to speed with what's uh, really happening in Portland and Richard, I want to thank you again for coming on the Oregon roundup podcast. And I I'd love to Thanks have for you for having me. Again. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks so much, Richard. Bye-bye. Hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. Great to talk to Richard. Uh, it's cool that we have this kind of Substack community of people in Oregon who are concerned about the direction things are going and are writing and talking about it. And Richard is a very important member of that group. Hope you enjoyed listening. This is Jeff Eager, Oregon Roundup Podcast. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to the Roundup Podcast. To share your thoughts with Jeff, you can email him at jeff at oregonroundup.com. You can also subscribe to his newsletter at oregonroundup.substack.com.